It's Blamo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. Hello! Surprise! I'm still here. Still here, just <laughs> just talking to the wall. Just hanging out, talking to my green wall in my office. By the way, I don't know why the hell I painted this wall green. Like, I, <laughs> it's so stupid. Do you ever, like, we're going we're gonna to jump into the show, I promise. There's not a big rant tonight. But the funniest thing is everyone messages me and everyone's like, oh, man, I love it when you just start talking. Well, here it is. I'm talking. I'm talking more. Um, so when we when we moved into this house, I was like, dude, I'm going to make this cool studio. And it's it's the equivalent of um, a man cave, which is just such a first off, it's a trashy word. I'm not Cro-Magnon or any of that stuff. But like, yeah, this is this is where I come to play with my toys. Like this is, you know, the, the studio. And I thought of some calming dark green but in order to have lights on because this is dark as hell i turn all these lights on and the green just looks like it looks like trash i mean it looks like putrid crap and so if there's no lights on in here and you peek at the room from maybe like 30 feet out right you peek in you're like oh dude jeremy's office is sick but if you're in here and you're talking to a computer for four and a half hours you're like, this is, something's got to change. Something's got to give. Many things have to give. One of those things, I'm doing the dishes tonight, and I realize <laughs> I have a problem. Like, I have a serious OCD issue that I cannot, if, if there is a, anything in the sink, name it. Like, just the, the tiniest fragment of any particle of shit in the sink. I can't sleep. I don't know what's going on. That my whole the whole system is breaking down. It it like it really bothers me. And first off, you know, I live in a very egalitarian home. You know, we both cook, we both clean, we both kind of do everything. But man, like some people, they want to do these things where it's like you want to soak the pan overnight. Like who the fuck soaks pans? Like oh yeah, just leave it to soak. Like this isn't 1945 or whatever. All the dish detergent and all that stuff is just banging. Like just. Just scrub it off. And so I can't, I can't handle dishes in the sink. So no matter what, even right now, I'm recording this late because homie had to stand up there and I was just scrubbing the hell out of these dishes. I had to make them sparkly clean. And, you know, it's, I, guys, I got a problem. This is, maybe this is why I have a podcast, right? So I can talk to a wall cover that I don't like and complain about my dishes. Um, bonus episode, surprise. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, I'm talking with Neil Barrett and Jeremy Smith, the standard and strange. I, look, obviously the season was over, but we got to do the bonuses. You got to do some stuff. You can't just be, I can't just run away. You know, I'm, I'm trying to record the new episodes, which are coming. It, they're coming. Uh, if you, if you're actually listening to this, it'll be interesting to hear if anyone reacts to it. Talked with, um, Matt Lambert of factors. One of my favorite new brands. We just, we did a pod. It was freaking great. I can't wait. I can't wait to share with you all these episodes we're working on. It's going to be awesome. But Standard and Strange, first off, they do sponsor the pod. Disclosure. Hello. Surprise. And but like I, I love that brand. I love the guys. I love the store. I love how they run their business. And it's they're they're special. They're, they're definitely special. Are they the only retail store that are doing things differently? No. And they would never say the same thing either. So let's be very clear as we listen to this, that this is not about nobody does it the way they do. They are definitely doing things very differently. 
and I'm so stoked and I'm so proud of them. And I think, look, a rising tide lifts all boats and it's fantastic. I talked with Neil and Jeremy about the origins of the brand. By the way, I do say brand because they started making like bicycle wear, not like Harley Davidson, like bike, but like bicycle. And it's really cool how they met. And it it goes to show you, by the way, as an aside, holy cow, this industry is so tiny. It's so tiny. Don't burn your bridges. Don't just be good people because everybody talks and everybody, you know, goes off of word of mouth for recommendations. It's, it's very true. So we talked about their, their first brand, their bike company, how they do retail differently, the Japan stuff, because obviously everybody knows they carry a tons of amazing Japanese brands. And they talked about their Japan experience. It was great. I am so glad to play this for you. And um, by the way, before, you know, before we jump in, let me know what you thought of the season. Let me know if, what you like, what you didn't like. Do you, you want more, you know, you want more suit talk, you want more shoe talk, whatever. We'll figure it all out. But send me an email. Let me know. I love hearing from you all. Um, even the ones that like don't, that don't put a subject in the email. What are you like? Four? Put a freaking subject in the email, homie. Um, let me know. I want to I wanna filter my mind so I can answer you. All right. That's enough shooting from the hip. Here's my conversation with Neil Barrett and Jeremy Smith of Standard and Strange. The first time we were going to record this was in my hotel room in New York. And amateur hour Kirkland didn't have an SD card for some reason. It was, and we had to use those tiny little lapel mics. Do you guys remember this? Yeah, look, Lavier's. Yeah, you had a one. Good we have to share. <laughs> oh, the I cheese platter was excellent, and we drank all your wine. Yeah, which is fine. By all means, go for it. Uh, God, so we've been on an adventure, and we're finally here now. Uh, how are you guys doing? I'm doing solid, pretty good. Um, it's terrifyingly nice in california today it's like 75 degrees holy shit neil are you in california or are you in i'm in new york you're in new york yeah yeah i'm doing great things are good that's good you were in sweden right i was in sweden yeah for about five weeks what were you doing in sweden my girlfriend's from sweden so we went to go visit family over christmas and then decided to keep extending our trip just due to the status of the plague in new york didn't really seem like any point in coming back at the height of Omicron. So we just kind of hunkered down out in the Swedish countryside and, you know, cooked potatoes and moose and did a bunch of Swedish things. Is that, that's the Swedish thing? You cook potatoes and moose? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we went to a Viking gravesite that's been around for about a thousand years. A Viking gravesite? Yeah. They had all the headstones arranged in the shape of a boat. Okay. And apparently if you get a gravesite like that, you were pretty big viking pretty important guy right right so it was just you know on the side of the road kind of in the middle of nowhere okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i guess that beats uh going to you know all the fancy retail shops or whatever and, and so were you outside of stockholm i was on this little island in south eastern sweden called Erland. Mm-hmm. we did get, we spent a lot of time in stockholm and malmo and Göteborg, which is Gothenburg. and i learned a lot more swedish this trip Oh, I've been learning Swedish. Okay. Holy shit. Uh, Well, gents, thanks so much for joining. So you got Jeremy Smith and Neil. You know, Neil, I, you're Jeremy Smith is like a first name, last name guy. 
But Neil, I mean, I know it's Neil Barrett, but like Neil's like just, it's like a one name that answers everything. Yeah. There's not a lot of Neils out there. Yeah. Hilariously, there is another fashion guy named Neil Barrett. He spells his name differently, his last name differently than mine. Oh, yeah. Occasionally I get emails for him. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. He he used to design for Prada. Big, big deal guy. I actually like his stuff. Yeah. He's got good stuff. Um, But I want to talk to you guys about the shop, about your backstory, and kind of how you both met. So Neil and Jeremy, how did both of you guys meet? Because both of you had very different careers pre-Standard and Strange. Bikes, bicycles. We both moved to San Francisco, the Bay Area, um, about the same time, around 05, 06, mm-hmm. and both ride bikes and got connected through the very tight cycling community here. And we just started hanging out, riding bikes together. There's a small group of us that has long since blown apart, just, you know, over 15 years, six, 17 years now. Um, okay, so you met that long ago. Yeah. It's been 17 years? I mean, peak SF Holy fixed. Holy Christ. Right? That was like 05, 06, 20, 20, or 07. What the hell yeah. happened? Yeah. Um, Life, man. Trust yeah. me, I, I feel the same way. Shit's gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> We've known each other for 17 years. Jesus Christ. Oh, better that than, uh, you know. 17 days, yeah. Yeah, yeah or 17 True. days. So you guys met over, I mean, both of you were were into bikes at the time. Were you guys just meeting up and riding? Because I know that yeah. there's all these sorts of like cool guy bike clicks. Like there's, you know, like there's style forum meetups. There's big bike meetups. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, there was a entire forum for people who rode fixed gears and track bikes in the city. I think it's now defunct. I haven't looked at it in years called SF Fixed that one of our friends started. Oh, and snap. And that led to a lot of real world interaction mm-hmm. it's kind of we all hung around the same bike shop too over here in oakland called montano velo and so you're like okay. you know you know if you rode fixed gear bikes in the bay area you're inevitably going to run into the same people and neil what were you doing at the time i moved to the bay area for work i was doing radiation cleanup at the hunter's point shipyard yeah so you were full homer simpson not really no, we didn't really wear suits. We had to wear respirators every now and then. We wore Tyvex when it was muddy. But okay. the levels of radiation we were working with were pretty low. But yeah. um, that project was later mired in controversy and fraud. And two of my bosses went to prison. <laughs> sure. I mean, that, that <laughs> seems pretty normal. Yeah, okay. you, can, you, can, you can look up the Hunter's Point shipyard in Tetratech. There's a long, lot, lots of shit there. But I got out and was not part of the fraud. Yeah, you got out because you were riding bikes. Yeah, and uh, I became sick of it. Was a toxic work environment, both literally and figuratively. So I left. And and Jeremy, at the time, you're in the Bay Area, and what were you? Where were you working? Because you had a pretty illustrious tech career too. Yeah, pre, yeah. I was. I moved here. Well, my wife got a position at Berkeley, a PhD role there. Flex. And so that's why we moved here. We both got different offers for PhD programs, and it was more or less which one of us is going to be economically viable while the other person goes to more school. Mm-hmm. And I was already a software engineer, so kind of Bay Area made sense. Berkeley plus software engineering, and then I just cranked my career from there, and then exited the tech world as a COO, and I was done with tech, um, which is a completely different rant about the world of tech and. My feelings about it, but that's a separate podcast. That is an entirely separate podcast. I was talking to somebody about it this morning. And it's like, 
the ethics and everything of the underlying technology and how it's developed and how it's thought about are just not awesome. Mm. So, okay. you know, I wanted to, I had wanted to change careers since probably 2008. Okay. So, and so at that time, you're kind of basically finding friends and community with, with the bike fam. Yep. And so you and Neil meet up, you guys are hanging out and where does, let's start a store happen. So <laughs> I'll tell the, the capsule version of this is, you know, in the early or mid early 2000s, like, you know, we'll say the 05 through 2010 period, mm-hmm. there just wasn't very good menswear options at all. You know, and I worked in an office and literally could not get shirts that fit. And so my first entry into this was getting tied up with um, Taylor Stitch and helping him out with a bunch of things. And really what I started to do was any apparel brand, I could barter my tech skills for access to the industry. I did it. It was just like, oh, you need help figuring out your CRM. You need help figuring out email marketing. You need help figuring out how to do e-commerce. I'll do it for free. Trade. Just, you know, get me into factories, get me into production. So you weren't like, give me clothes. You were like, teach me. Yeah. Okay. That's very different than, hey, I'll make you a cool website. Comp me some jeans. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I was making plenty of money. I can buy, I could buy my own jeans. It was more about learning the industry. And where Neil comes in is I had a couple sort of like riding the bike, shower thoughts, but on the bike, we're Uh riding up the local mountain mount diablo the guy ahead of me he's got his digital camera remember back when we used to have separate cameras from our phones oh god he's got yes. a big chonky boy he's got like fucking <laughs> a brick in the back of his wool jersey and i'm okay. watching this thing drag down and down and down as he's riding and it's like touching his back tire by the time we're at the top of the mountain and i'm All like right. there's got to be a better way to make a wool cycling jersey and then i went through the thing where i bought some rafa and i was completely disappointed because it fell apart <laughs> And at that point I had, and at the, at the time, just really the only sort of cycling brand that was kind of really popping off was Rafa, right? I mean, Rafa, ASOS, that was about it. Right. And we were early to this thing of like direct to consumer Mm -hmm. cycling. We were way too early, but from contacts I had made through outlier, through Taylor stitch, through a bunch of other brands, I had a local factory in the Bay area that could sew technical knitwear. I had mm. a guy who could make us a custom wool blend. And my idea was, well, let's do a super stiff um, engineered wool blend with some pattern tricks to create a jersey that's good for the crazy climate swing we have here when you ride your bike here. Because you'll go from like 40 degrees to 80 degrees in a ride. Oh, and geez. also that can hold up like an entire, day, entire day's worth of shit in your back pockets. And that was too much to take on. And I got stuck on the dumbest thing. And I had gotten Neil and a couple other people interested in investing in the company. And one day Neil's like, is there anything I can do to help? I'm like, can you sort the fucking zippers out, please? They're killing me. Zippers. Don't get me started on zippers. Zippers are like, we could have a podcast in zippers alone. Called Zip It. Yeah. it's <laughs> When you really dive into it and you see like really dumb fucking mistakes that people make on zipper construction, how they're inserted into garments. It's like, it's crazy. But well, wait, how many, just as an aside, it's, it's just like what YKK, Riri and no, no, there's dozens. Um, oh. there's Lenzip, there's, you can, there's universal and there's like a whole talent. Yeah. Talon. There's a whole tier of shitty Chinese suppliers that make like 10 cent zippers. And you know, obviously we went YKK or no, we didn't. We went to the nope. main USA option first, which is you can, which we started to call you can't. 
Hmm. Sounds like you got some serious zipper baggage, my man. We have some no. serious zipper baggage. No, not, not, not to go off on a huge tangent, tangent <laughs> but there's like YKK US, YKK Japan, YKK Europe, YKK here, YKK there. And they mm-hmm. all have different product lines and they produce different things. So you, you try to buy a reverse zip, five millimeter zipper in this length and this mm-hmm. color, and one YKK makes it or can supply it to you. But the other one doesn't. And you have to go through this web of insanity and confusion. Right. Now they just have a portal. You can literally go to a web site that has no insanity or confusion and just order your damn zippers. But back then it was like atrocious. And then there's like this mind fuck of zipper lengths and garment lengths and trying to fit all of that puzzle together while not buying 10,000 zippers. Yikes. Yeah. So you're making cool guy buy clothes. Yep. You loop in Neil to get some zippers fixed up. And, and so we got through three or four production runs and then we got derailed by there's two big things that sort of killed the company. Thing one was a typhoon hit Thailand and made our wool delivery. So our, our supplier did the final knitting in Thailand. Okay. It was Australian wool that went to Korea for dyeing and spinning and then it was knit in Thailand. Um, and our container just got stuck. Mm. It took six extra months or something ridiculous to get our wool. And it was winter weight. And we got it delivered and wound up making our winter jerseys in summer and lost six months of selling time where we didn't have new product. And the other thing that sort of in tandem really kicked us in the balls was just we didn't we thought we could just make a really good product and it would sell. And we didn't leverage what a lot of other companies were doing at the time, which was insanely cheap. Um, customer acquisition because this is like can, can you, know, you kind of 2011 yeah can you can you elaborate a little bit on that because i think people it's be it's been used so much and it's become the norm that i don't think people know what oh. the difference is so in terms of like cu- customer acquisition and losing your money or whatever oh so in that time it was if we had been smart and spent our money on facebook ads it would have been it would have changed the entire trajectory because it was so cheap to buy customers back then on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a number of big success stories like State Bicycle who did really well doing that. And we didn't even know to ask those questions. Like we didn't well, know, like we were trying to get so press and go ahead. Okay. Well, so how does that work? I mean, I'm not saying give like a masterclass on it, but just like, cause, and, or correct me if I'm wrong, basically people offer huge discounts in order to earn the customer's first purchase. And basically sell at a loss, right? But in a sense, I mean, it's, it's like it's Uber. Tactic. It's more right? like we weren't going to say it, we wouldn't have been selling at a loss. We would have just been like buying ads for very little money. Now, if you buy an ad to acquire a menswear customer, like on Facebook, you know, right. you're paying probably $300 for a new customer. So you're oh, losing geez. money in your first purchase unless you're really slamming it on your order values. And before that, you were spending how much? Or I mean, in those days, you could probably buy a customer for ten bucks. It was so cheap. Wow! And we didn't know to do any of this. Like we were trying to get press. We didn't understand how getting press worked. We didn't understand how paid editorial. We didn't know anything about how to drive the growth of the business. And that ultimately, you know, combined with losing a wholesaling season, got us to a point where we had four thousand dollars left, and we had just leased a space to be our office and showroom. Wow! And this was like. I would say June 2012. You know, after a year and a half, we just had failed. 
Um, and are you both working? Yeah. Neil, are you, are you still doing cleanup? No, I've been. So you guys were both doing this full time. At the time, I, we were. This was a side project. We both. Well, we you know, had other jobs. Yeah. Okay. So we did oh, do it full time other. together after I got laid off in 2011. Um, I think we had like nine months where we were jamming on it. Yeah, we had this weird cadence because we were both doing a lot of contract work. And so mm. it just ended up working out where one person was working, the other one wasn't. And then for like a few months at a time, and then we'd swap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But basically at the time, we were kind of two idiots with a stack of jerseys in my neighbor's garage. And <laughs> we were tired of the rats in the garage. And so we rented this space to use his office or showroom. And... From there, it was the landlord said, I don't understand office showroom. It's 400 bucks a month. If you do retail, I'll rent it to you. And we... So you had to do retail in order to to get the space. We figured we'd just throw some jerseys on... on, We'd have a couple of desks and have one rail and our products there and just do our product development and all of that stuff from from this little space. Yeah, because I feel like that's, you know, now that's kind of like, the cool thing to do, right? Like you have, you have an office that doubles as a retail store. I mean, I know like when Antonio was doing 18 East, it was like important for him to have the same space that things are being sold, you know, 20 feet away decisions are being made about Mm -hmm. products. Yeah. And we saw that as a really good way to do it because in, you know, if you have your door open, people come in, they try stuff on, you get instant feedback. Right. But our, our landlord is, um, she just only understands like the models of retail that have existed since, you know, whenever she was a teenager or whatever. It's like you buy, you sell things, you cut hair, you serve, you serve a food item. Right. Are you getting like landlord feedback at the time? Is that, is that like well, what you're referring to? She, like, she's like, she wanted retail too. She didn't okay. part of, you know, what she wanted for these little, this little alley that she was developing wasn't like, I don't think an office showroom really fit into that idea either. And mm-hmm. I don't think that when we explained it to her, I think she was like, how are these guys going to make money? <laughs> Fair. Sure. I guess. <laughs> Interesting. So we had the space and it was 200 square feet for the first one. Yeah, it's about 200 square feet. And so we did a very rough and dirty build out. Well, we decided, okay, so we ran our money and we're like, okay, we've got 4,000 bucks left. We can all walk away with $1,000 or we can shoot the moon. And try to turn this around. So we begged and borrowed and stole as much inventory as we could from all of the friends we had made over the years. We didn't actually Mm -hmm. steal anything. We didn't steal anything. Clarification, nothing was stolen. Nothing was stolen. (laughs) Um, We got like Taylor Stitch on board. We got Telesin. We got Topo. Our first concept for the store is actually like menswear meets Gorp, which... We were 10 years too early for. I was going to say a little, (laughs) a little ahead of your time there. Yeah, because we had Telesin and Taylor Stitch and Rogue Territory sitting next to Mission Workshop, Topo, some very small cottage industry outdoor brands, um, make outerwear like one at a time. It was a PNW, I think. Mm -hmm. And we had like vapor water. Everything was made in the USA. It was like sort of like menswear meets Gorp, all made in USA. Stuff basically was our lifestyle in a little shop. And it was way too early for that concept, but we did okay. Like we turned our inventory every month and instead of a stack of jeans, we had two stack of jeans, you know, instead of 10 shirts, we had 20 shirts and we just kept plowing it back in and the store kept getting bigger, you know, fuller and fuller. Plowing it back in, in terms of your reinvesting into yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think we took a salary for years. Yeah. It took years for us to see anything out of it. Um, but we knew it was, it was just like, 
it connected so well on in some ways the gorp piece aside like the core idea of putting this store together over on this side of the bay where there really wasn't anyone doing it and we were right. not online when we started it took us almost two years before we went online like we're, is anyone like mentoring you guys through this because i i call that out in the sense that i feel a lot of people unless you have unlimited money would usually give up where you're at where it's like it's not working or the bike thing isn't working or we're totally done we're not going to do this and it kind of breaks my heart a bit because obviously you guys continued and look where you're at now but if you don't have some sort of additional guide it makes me wonder how much you know even better could retail be when people you know are doing things that are very unconventional very different from different merchandising where it's i feel like retail can sometimes be an environment where your lack of training, um, air quoting that word, you know, um, is is an advantage. So we didn't really have anyone mentoring us. It, this was a very scrappy, let's figure this shit out right. type of approach. And, right. you know, I was convinced that doing a clothing, like a clothing store was going to tank us. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to go back to the radiation mines, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think. You know, because we, you know, we opened a store with like four thousand dollars. I don't know how the hell we did it. I mean, that's what we, we had spent opening New York, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, like we we got tools from the tool lending library across the street, and then we bought some wood. And I think, I think actually we did steal some wood. Yes, we did. We did steal some wood, um, and Please. just like po- kind of poorly built this store. And then our friends that we had met you know, over the years of just making these cycling garments in the Bay area, we're like, yeah, sure. I'll, we'll do consignment for a few stacks of jeans. Um, so I think part of it is we had like the support of these relationships we had built for a few years prior to this. And right. just okay. like the scale of everything was so small as well. Like when your rent's 400 bucks a month, you know, and I mean, we had our first employee in like within four months too. Yeah. Like we were able to throw enough cash to hire someone. Well, that our first employee was in high school and worked a few days a week. And I had to get a note from his principal, like saying that he could work there. Cause I was like, I don't know if it's legal to hire you. (laughs) And he later moved to New York, got an architecture degree and helped us out with a lot of the design of the New York store. Well, there you go. A nice way for it to kind of come around. It was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, so you basically have like the whole power of the community that's kind of helping you guys do that. I mean, it's it's very kind of beautiful utopian almost and just like, you know, it's it's all for the good of the neighborhood. And something else that we saw that uh, a detail I keep forgetting, the you know, when barbershops were a new somehow a new thing back in 2010, 2011. Oh, yeah, yeah, the rise of kind of like the Freeman's sort of mm. cool guy barber. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool yeah. guy barber in the alley. That's where, our, that's where I was getting my haircut back then. And that's where right. I saw the space. But what I saw was people wearing the clothes that we were going to sell, walking in and out of that barber shop all day, every day. And that was one of the things that gave me some hope was like, if we put the things these people are wearing in front of them, mm. you know, we have a good chance of peeling off, you know, and, and I figured out we really just have to sell like a pair of jeans a day to get this to work for the first couple months. Yeah. Shout out to Brad and Nick of Temesco Alley Barbershop. Yeah. Are they, are they still clipping? They're still, they're still cutting hair and you know, at the, I think they still are. They don't do appointments. It's walk-ins only. So there would be sometimes be an hour wait and you're sitting outside, like waiting for your haircut. 
And then we got a jeans store 10 feet away. Interesting. So, I mean, yeah, just being, because I think that's the other thing that people will talk about too, where uh, when you're making any sort of store, just being in the right vibe, you know, the right neighborhood, the right kind of, you know, casual walk by. And I think it also, I mean, you know, unconsciously, it speaks to the importance of just physical retail stores. Because imagine if you guys would have done this where it's like just a site and you have some cool stuff. Like, I don't know if you'd have the success story that you have if it wasn't for. So there's a million sites like that. Some of them are scams too. (laughs) One of the things that was a conscious decision on our part was even though Cedar Cycling was online only and direct to consumer, we decided that with the store, we weren't going to do e-commerce first, that we wanted to, you know, consciously practice doing retail and understanding customers and merchandising and have this small controlled little test tube Mm -hmm. and to make worry first about making space where people were comfortable. And this was something that was like from the get go, it was, we want to have a store to buy, you know, denim and boots and all this, like where you walk in and you feel welcome immediately and you're comfortable, it's comfortable environment and there's no pressure and there's no cool guy bullshit. Like you just show up, you know, buy something or don't, but just hang out and have a good time. Yeah. We had both had awful experiences with retail. Just, I think like most guys have where you just get shit service, shit product or both. And Mm -hmm. one of the things we really liked about going to the barbershop to get our haircut is while they were a cool barbershop, they were welcoming to everyone. They didn't care who you were. They'd cut your hair. If you were a cool guy, if you were a kid, if you were like an old guy, were a not cool guy <laughs> and they were also one of the first barbershops at least in oakland that would give a men's haircut to a woman too oh okay yeah <clears throat> and that was like a they just wanted to cut hair and wanted right. to get to know you right and so that was a very conscious decision for how we wanted to have our store in oakland too is we wanted to be welcoming to everyone because it sucks when you go to a store and someone's you know gives you the cool guy run around yeah i mean to get pretty woman yeah i mean it, it's like it, 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 they're jeans like you know, and it's like if you walk into a store to buy a nice pair of we'll just stick with jeans is the analogy here but it's like let's say you walk into a denim store to buy some new jeans well obviously you're there's a good chance you're walking in wearing a pair of like mall levi's because how would you know if you didn't get go to the store but now we run into the like the circular logic of I need experience for the job, but how do I get the job without the experience? Like I'm not allowed <laughs> to buy the cool guy jeans if I don't have the cool guy <laughs> jeans, but how do I get the cool guy jeans if I can't go to the cool guy jeans store? <laughs> yeah. And that's, no, you're yeah, I agree. It's kind of like the way our staff are trained is the dialogue is never about how ah, your jeans suck that you're wearing. It's always like, well, what do you want? What do you love? What about the, what is it about the pair that you have now that made you buy them? And then we can find you the right equivalent in a you know, more premium pair of jeans. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that I think no matter what, because it, it's not a lot of people want to blame a retail store, but oftentimes there is a uh, presumed, presumed like attitude that the shopper has before they enter uh, of just being intimidated. Like I remember early New York going into Bergdorf's and being like, I'm not cool enough to be here. Going to Jeffrey, I don't know if you guys ever went there on like 14th. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like the cool new meatpacking store, like way back in the day. And you know they had like Dior jeans or whatever. And, and you'd go in there and you just feel like I'm not cool enough to be here. 
like this, this, no matter what, even if you'd go to those places and sometimes you'd have a clown that helps you. And sometimes you'd have a really nice person, like the attitude was still the same, you know? And I think like that, that's the hardest thing I think for any retail store, especially if you have good product where people are just like, Oh, you know, cause my little brother works at a store in a really sick area in St. Louis. They, people that are in there, I mean, I already saw it where it's like a guy who was like, Oh, I don't, I don't know if I'm cool enough to wear this just because of what a mannequin looks like. And so it's like, how do you inspire, but also not intimidate at the same time? It's like, it's, I think it's a very fine line to walk. Yeah. And that's, it is a very challenging line of, you know, it can be intimidating to walk into any of our stores because, you know, our price points are high and everything there is worth every penny, but it's like, making people comfortable in the environment and making them comfortable, you know, it's, they're just clothes, like touch them, put them on, try it out, try it out. Right. It's not like precious. Right. You're not going to break a pair of jeans if you drop it on the floor. Um, <laughs> but it's a lot of coaching and a lot of just gentle nudges to just try stuff on and see how it looks and feels. And it's really one of the things that we love about doing physical retail is you get to see the reaction when somebody puts on the right thing. And it's especially categorically it's like leather jackets and jeans are the really transformative items when someone puts on the right one and they're just like holy shit is this even me Mm. you mean the phrase the not sure i can pull this off no no more like i can't believe i can look this good in this garment ah okay okay or i've never felt i've never felt this good wearing clothes yeah because the fit is yeah. right or, you know, there's something about it that clicks in a way where they just haven't experienced it before. Yeah, I'm still that guy who there's a few different and I mean, I'm not trying to shame any brands, but there's a few denim brands that I want to wear because I see how cool other people look wearing them. But the way my body is, I can never wear them. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's jeans. That's jeans. And that's yeah. something that we have been very conscious about in our editing down. Because it's very easy to be a store where you have a hundred fits and fabric or more, and what we realized is that's not what we need to be. We need to have a few brands that that execute really well, and mm-hmm. we need to have four or five fits per brand. And mm. all of the fits that we have are going to be comfortable for somebody. You know, it's like I couldn't put on. There's probably a third of the jeans in our store that I cannot physically wear. So shout out Tight Taper for Momotaro. i can't wear them either beautiful (laughs) jeans on the right guy so like dean del rey the comedian he wears the tight taper it's perfect for him but i can't even get the damn thing like over my knees and you know on the other hand if i were to give someone like dean a pair of like wide fit kirks from indigo Farah, that would be a disaster right 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 and we try to get away from what's the cool hot slubbiest fast fade whatever you know, story and into like what, what gene is the most comfortable and makes in like, looks the best on you and feels the best on you. It makes you comfortable to wear it. Yeah. Cause this is where you guys start to get into some really high end, but also brands that I have difficulty pronouncing that I don't, that I didn't know existed all this. I mean, I'd love, I'd love to hear about how you guys kind of started making your way over to Japan to get stuff. Because I feel like if you're going to enter in the retail world of denim you can't not go to japan it was it sort of trickled in we started selling japanese brands probably two 
two years or a year and a half or so after we opened around 2013, we started to sell a few Japanese brands. Like I think we got full count in 2014. Um, we got capital around 2014 and then mm-hmm. somewhere around 2014, I reached out at random to this brand that I've been a fan of for, I don't know, five years at this point called OA Ofkton. And can you say it again? O- slower. Sorry. OA. Just, no, it's OA. It's, uh, the family name is OA and Yofkin okay. is just Taylor. Well, la di da. And right. I literally hit them up on Instagram. And I have a screenshot of this in not even DMs. There weren't DMs on Instagram yet. I just commented, um, hey, do you guys do wholesale? Free DM, man. <laughs> DMs. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, send different it. time. They were like, maybe yeah. send us an email. So we emailed them and then we mailed them a care package with like a lookbook and some, you know, Bay Area products. And we built the relationship very slowly. And Interesting. Yeah, I think, I think like a good thing to get into is what's been super important for us is building the maintaining relationships, both like with brands we carry, with everyone that we're involved with, like the staff, the customers. Yeah. Everything. It's like I consider it to be the glue that holds everything together. Yeah, I mean, welcome to the the industry. I mean, it, I mean it's like life, yeah. really. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, and it, and it's all it takes is one, <laughs> one like slip up, and word travels super fast. I mean, it's so yeah. I mean, the power of good relationships it, it gets you everywhere. Yeah. So so you send them some gear. We what we did is we sent them a like a care package, I guess. That we didn't talk about doing business with them. We were just like, look, this is who we are. I had this mm-hmm. like little lookbook I had printed that was, it was just like photos I had taken around the shop over the years. It wasn't anything high production. And okay. we got like some coffee roasted in oak coins, some chocolate made locally and like a few other, some other snacks and hired, wrote a letter, hired a translator. And it was just like, we really respect what you do. Here's like a little bit about us and what we're about um we hope you enjoy it like that was it and, we, and radio silence from them or well we they... had a through a friend of a friend like all relationships in japan it starts with an introduction so yeah. or a vouch um we had someone who knew them that we knew tangentially give them a heads up you're gonna get something in the mail from a store in california and so they got the package and I think they were just so touched by it that they were like, we'll work with you. Cause I think yeah, at, at the time, like they were like thinking about doing wholesale, but they weren't really sure. And then this mm-hmm. care package shows up and they're like, well, we want to work with these guys. There's something real Which there. Is, yeah. The, Cause the contrast of that with an American company and you know, where it's like generate as much business as you can do everything you can to grow. And, you know, so work with anyone. And I mean, I love that about Japan into which they're like, we really, you know, they, cause they care so much about how they're being represented and, and how they're being merchandised. You know, I mean, I remember first getting into some of these, uh, this is way back in the day, probably around, you know, Oh nine when we were trying to do stuff and the brands were like, cool. Do you have two other brands that you've worked with that could vouch for you? We were like, no. You know, and then thank God, Mark McNary was like, yeah, you guys are all right. But I mean, like that's that's you need to have the kind of, you know, friendly door holder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of our all of our business with Japanese brands now has come from 
some kind of introduction. Mm. Um, you know, there's probably like I think like Rototo socks. We've never met anyone from from them, but all of like the heavy hitters that we do business with, there was an introduction. There was some greasing of the wheels to make it happen. So like Black Sign, we were introduced to Black Sign by OA in Nagoya in. I want to say 2016 or 2017. It took us a few years to really work up to the point where we felt comfortable stocking it. But, mm. you know, eventually we did. And it was goes back to that connection. And, you know, McCoy's came about through a personal connection as well, as did Warehouse. Um, just all, all of our Japanese business came through that way. What's interesting is our other vendors, our non-Japanese vendors, they're still, they do business that way too. It's really, none of them are very merchant driven or mercantile. They're, more about delivering the best product with the best relationships um, than just, you know, foregoing growth at all costs. I describe it as they take the long perspective on their business. They're not looking for any like quick shortcuts because they know that those, those are risky and they fizzle out and rarely do they do or rarely do they not backfire. Right. 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 And it's like, you know, our top American brand is free note from, San, uh, San, San Juan, Juan Campus. Yeah. And, you know, we've been working with them since 2013 or so. And they take the same approach. It's like they don't just slam wholesale. They're very cautious and deliberate. And they've become very focused on not making giant runs of product in, at all. So as they found their way now, it's like they'll do a cut of 75 shirts instead of 300. And, you know, so they sit, almost everything goes through at full price for them. And they're very cautious about who their retail partners are. And as because of this, they haven't, you know, it's not like a $10 million business all of a sudden, but they have a very durable business where the mm. retailers will stick up for them. Their customers will stick up, you know, they've built a high quality, um, you know, community driven business that way. No, it's, it's, I think it's about finding a good harmony of your scale, right? Especially with garment production, because if you try to scale too fast, and you fuck up a few production runs, that could cost you everything. Yeah, you mean like in quality control, yeah. or just like, or even just, or, or or you just make make shit that doesn't sell. You know, you you make yeah, the wrong move. I feel like because that's got to be so difficult with jeans, as an aside, right? Because like, like denim in general is like the great equalizer. Like it, everyone can wear denim or or understands it right like it, there's it there's not too much to explain and because of that it it's kind of always available so it's like how do you make denim and become a, a brand that it's all essentially the same but it's just the slightest bit different or the slightest bit more rare and you want to you know make it desirable but also <laughs> like accessible you know i mean again it's kind of like that that line to walk where in in a sense it's it's they all do the same right but it's just like being able to show someone whether it's the weight or the slubbiness or the rivets or they're hidden or they're not or they're buttons or you know i mean what's funny is our premium like really our flagship brand oa if you pick up a pair and you don't know you won't know and that's kind of the magic is they are sublime in the way that they're nearly invisible but the fit is perfect. The fabric is perfect. The construction, all of it. But it's not done in a way that is shouting, hey, look at me. You know, there's no 
except, you know, it's not like, oh, we pushed this low tension loom to its limit to create the ultimate slub monster, or, you know, we created a 25 ounce fast fader. It's, we slaved away for the last decade to make our latest batch of denim for these jeans that is, that has the exact fading properties of jeans from 1955 or whatever. Like, the denim all of those things are crazy too yeah. by the way that's that's insane yeah. i mean just to achieve any of those it's still nuts yeah i would describe them as being understated and not ostentatious but like if you had to relate oa to a brand that other people know hmm. is this like keton keton but without the markup wow. but <laughs> i mean in terms of like the concept it's you know it's a husband and wife ryo the husband cuts everything hero sews everything themselves okay. in their little workshop you know they're not hand sewn they're sewn on machines but they have a small army of the exact machines for the exact period and you know the machines are kept in tune by a living national treasure of japan mr matsuoka you know is he a mechanic yeah, yeah. he's we were there one time and he rolls up opens up his trunk pulls out a fucking vertical mill and makes a new part for one of the sewing machines in the parking lot outside their little workshop. Is this Tony Stark? You basically, <laughs> he's like, yeah. <coughs> he just like lays his hands on machines and they're, you know. I have a fabricator. Well, check this out. He he came to Oakland once with OA and our we have a chain stitch machine, you know, the union special that everyone's got. And we bought that from Roy. It's always been running rough. Like it works really mm-hmm. well, but it's always got that like slight roughness to it. Mr. Matsuoka comes in, just like lays his hands on it. I don't know what he did, and instantly it's butter. It's just like incredibly smooth. He imbued mechanic yeah. energy. Yeah, he's just like a okay. he's like a little magician. Yeah. But I think to get back to your earlier question, Jeremy, is like how how like how you know, like how do you stand out in a sea of denim, right? Yeah. Because there's so many options from like nowadays like you have so many choices of what to get you can have anything that you want when it comes to denim i think for us it's about creating a store where you emotionally bond with us and the product and to give people that experience that like that's what kind of drives it for them it's like this all this big package deal you get with the experience that that when you come in and you get deeper in with the brand and the product and like have this emotional connection to it. And that's what makes it special. Yeah. Versus I mean, instead least... of like, give us 300 bucks and you won't be naked from the waist down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, and at least the good thing is the people that buy denim, you know, uh, it's, it's funny because, uh, I don't know who, it, who had made this joke. It might've been on like a forum or a meme, but it was like, basically if you want to find out what like a denim dude's wearing, like they're never going to tell you like, because everyone views it as like their own little secret, which is funny that you mentioned Keaton, right? Because I think a lot of people that will wear, you know, a, a very well-dressed Italian guy will never tell you as Taylor because they're, they're worried you're going to, you're going to get in on it. And then, you know, and then obviously the, their, their, their secret well is, is now dry. <laughs> Yeah, it's such a foreign concept to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's kind of the fun of why people like to do that to where, I mean, especially with, with denim, right? I mean, I, I, I'll admit it. Like, I kind of love wearing some weird denim brand that no one's heard of. Um, 
but obviously a billion other people have heard of it online. It's just not the people around me. <laughs> Anyhow, so as you guys are growing, like how much was the internet helping you on this or was it not? And I don't mean e-commerce, but I just mean, you know, like what you're talking about right now, like the power of, of the enthusiast on the internet. I think it's, it, it was definitely a huge tailwind, especially as we got into as we moved away from just having basics, you know, your Talus and Taylor Stitch and Rogue Territory kind of thing, and we moved right, into right, right. really being focused on niche garments, you know, things like, you know, Super Future, Style Forum, uh, the now defunct, is Denim Bro defunct? It's around still. Um, and then Instagram for a long time all kind of propelled us forward. You know, we don't really participate that much on super. It's it's too much work to like be on all the forums. Um, you know, we have an active style forum thread, but it's definitely been a big lift. But you still have to make your reputation before people are going to talk about you. Right. Yeah, because style forum. I mean, I know like Greg Lelouch of No Man Walks Alone has always done really well with kind of the whole style forum world because I mean it's it's such a direct relationship with your customers. And I feel like that's kind of where a lot of good brands and stuff have evolved to now in the sense that like people want to patronize people over like a shop or a brand. It's like, oh yeah, like, oh, hold on. Let, let me text Jeremy Smith and ask him if this is the right gene for me. It's like you, you, you know, the flex now is the personal relationship with, with the store. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know, you got to have your guy. That's what I've learned about yeah. living in New York. It's all about having a guy for something. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And we put, and something we've always done is customer service goes to the front for our spending, for our focus, for, you know, everything. It's like, that is the thing where we have to excel and be the absolute best. That is our differentiator and, and secret power. You know, you'll send some stores an email and they'll just ignore you. Or give you a non-answer and it's like we have a deep culture of accountability around making sure that every single customer who contacts us in any way is taken care of if you email us if you call us any of that it's like we are on it and we are on it i would say six and a half days a week honestly there's always someone answering email and a lot of that is a you know heavy lift from technology and automation right. to support us at the back end but none of that, none of that tech, none of the automations, none of the technology, none of that shit matters if you don't have people who care and who know what they're talking about too. You know, it's yeah. like good service. Yeah. You can't yeah. automate it, right? Yeah, you can make it smoother. Sure, but like shout out to Mari here, who runs all our customer service effectively, who knows literally everything about every product we sell, especially boots, and just rams through these like huge queues of customer service questions every day. There's somewhat, some of them can be incredibly arcane and they all just like, yeah, that I, that's a high art. I mean, I remember doing that when I worked at the armory for a little bit into where even like sometimes like, because you can't discern tone over text. Right. So sometimes I would read something and I'd be like, man, this guy is ticked. And it would be someone who just maybe English wasn't their first language or something like that. Right. And you know, so just like, it's such a high art, of serenity and peace to be able to to handle that stuff because it's not like they're all bad but it's just how people talk over email about clothes they're trying to buy is somewhat different <laughs> yeah but you you know working customer service you see the gamut 
of humans, <laughs> like from good to bad and everything in between. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. And to be able to handle that with consistently with grace and like compassion and empathy is a, a skill that would make the world a much better place. <laughs> like if everyone just had to work at a restaurant and then do customer service or retail, like as one of their first jobs. <laughs> because we don't generate traffic through buying ads. We don't get a lot of people who are just like coming in and transactionally grabbing a thing. I mean, like coupon code um, people where it's just like coupon code people or something I saw at my last job. I had a 15 person customer service team reporting to me and we were an ad driven business selling our high end electric scooters. And so people are like impulse buying the shit from Facebook ads. And that customer is so different you know, there are expectations and like this age of Amazon is if you buy something on the internet that it yeah. shows up tomorrow and it's you buy perfect, it, you get the shipping like, notification in two hours, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and seeing the mentality of like the Instagram ad brand kind of customer versus ours, it was just incredibly right. stark difference, you know, like how angry people would get so quickly <laughs> over nothing. Yeah. To contrast that with, uh, my guy in New York, that's working for me, Patrick at the New York store. There's a Viberg MTO going on right now. And one of our really good regulars was like, I got a spot, but I can't make it. So Patrick's, I think at this moment, down there doing this guy's MTO appointment for him. What? Yep. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, it's proper client work, what we do. That is one of the things about coming to New York is, you know, we had some inklings about this level of mm -hmm. service that was needed. And we would not have dared to open a store if we didn't think we were you know, our core competency was being able to rise to meet that. Yeah. Because we've been doing it, you know, in our other stores and online this whole time where we're just like, people will be like, hey, I want these five things from McCoy's things. And, you know, we just get them and we deal with it. You know, there's one guy who just writes in, you know, maybe every couple of weeks and he's like, can you get this, this, and this from the real McCoy's? It's just. <laughs> That's it. It's, yeah, it's. There's no no other it's, part of the relationship or whatever. It's just like service oriented. Yeah. Like, I don't think he's ever even, I don't think he even looks at the website. I think he just like, he has this relationship where, with us now where he just knows to ask and then we take care of it. Mm. I, the only other thing I'll add about doing customer service really well is it is an enormous amount of work and effort. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that, that's, that's, in my opinion, what will keep any store around is if you're known. I mean, this is the thing where it's like, look, Sid Mashburn, I mean, they, his whole MO is service first and like make the person feel comfortable and the clothes will sell themselves. It's not that you should have bad clothes or you can get by with bad clothes, but it's just like if people are in a place where they know that they're safe, they're taken care of, they're going to learn, they're going to build a relationship there then they'll just naturally buy things in the process. Um, and, and it's not even like, oh, you do this way with the hidden intention of selling. You just, you do this and it, you know, and the sale is part of the, part of the whole process. Yeah, the sales just follow. If yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's been our MO from the get-go. It's always been like, I don't care if someone comes in and buys something. I care that they come in, they're taken care of, they have a good time, you know, they can chat with anyone about how the stuff is made. Or even, you know, not even talk about product. Who cares? Just like come in, hang out, we're friendly. And that has driven the business. Being able to just, you know, not worry about the selling, but worry about right. the customer. Right. 
Well, because at the end of the day, we have to be in the store for however many hours a week. Right. And if we don't make a comfortable environment for ourselves, it's not going to be a comfortable environment for people who come in. Yeah. Right. And so it, it part of it's like we, we make a store that we want to be in, we want to shop at. And turns out other people want to be in a place like that, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's like our selection criteria, too, is when now when we're buying, we're like, well, would we wear this? Would I buy this at retail? And if the answer is no, it doesn't get in the store. Ooh, would I buy this at retail? That's. That that definitely calls quite a few brands because there's a lot of brands. I'm like, dude, I'd love to get that if I wasn't paying full price. Yeah, we we really try to only buy stuff that we think is worth the spend for a customer to come in and be like, I want this thing, and here's yeah. my credit card. Yeah. Um. Well, I I definitely want to jump to a bit of like having you guys do a little bit of myth busting here because I think in general in the world of sort of denim and stuff there's all these kind of rules that like have been slapped over people's heads over and over again that some are true and some aren't so i'd love for you guys to do a little educational thing here so one of the things is is washing your jean and the washing machine is it a sin if basically people are like oh if you're buying if you're buying denim and you're buying high quality denim you put it in the wash like you might as well have just bought some crap denim because now it's worthless uh, I wish I had my denim washing guide <laughs> completed. It's mostly written, but the answer is it throw it in the washing machine. It's fine. Turn it inside out. It doesn't matter. They're jeans, but there's an exception there, which is black denim can be very susceptible to rub and get a weird marbling effect. If you wash it the right side out, like in a home machine, you'll okay. fuck it up. It's, it's a really weird effect. Um, like if I have, if I wash my black jeans at home, I put them in a garment bag inside out and that usually keeps them from getting the weird rub marks. But honestly, you know, I wash all my jeans after about, I would say 15 to 20 wears or when they get smelly or dirty. And there's a number 15 to 20 wears. Okay. My rule is if you wear them every day, wash them once a month, or if they don't pass the smell test, or if the knees start to get shiny, that's how you know they're dirty. Yeah, if they're like shiny and greasy, like when you touch them, yeah, you oof. gotta wash those fuckers. Because here's the thing about not washing your jeans that is sort of I, I can't stand it when like Chip, the head of the guy, the CEO of Levi's, like, oh, I never wash my jeans. Well, the thing about not washing your jeans is you get all this dirt and shit stuck in between the fibers. It starts to destroy the fibers, and that's where you start to see like crotch right. blowouts and stuff. Especially like if you're still wearing like 2012 fits, like the low rise super tight dye thing, and you don't wash them. I do. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And with that like low rise Uh tight hip, all the shit's like pulled so tight around Mm -hmm. uh, your crotch area. If you don't wash those on top of them being that particular fit, they just blow Mm. right out from like the friction. But even, you know, looser cuts are still going to fall apart sooner if you don't take care of them. Even if it's just like a cold rinse in the bathtub, anything, just get the dirt mm. out. And then for detergents, oh. I'm a sinner and I just use, um, I've been buying my detergent from this company called Drops and they just, they send Yeah, you that's the Instagram like, guy. Yeah, it's, it's fucking great. Like I love these, like they're the little encapsulated things mm-hmm. and you just throw it in, super neutral, unscented and very gentle and it works in cold water. So you do You're not using wash. the laundress denim wash by John Mayer? Probably good. I haven't tried it. It's 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 pretty fine. good actually. I've used it once, but it's you know it's there. It's I don't think it's anything that special than any other 
you know, light, uh, like color safe sort of wash. I don't, I don't like to put things on huge pedestals and have anything be too precious. Like I like to keep it simple. I'm a Dr. Bronner's man. That's what I, DB, what I throw in. Um, I wash them in a garment bag, like a lot, like a, one of those like delicates bags inside out. Um, and it's really, is that so they don't like wrap up in in themselves? So you don't get marbling when you wash it because of, because of like the the agitation cycle and the spin cycle, they can get all twisted up and then rub up against each other and you'll get this weird marbling effect sometimes. Okay. Depends on your uh, depends on your washing machine and it's been cycle. But I do I got delicate. A loader. Yep. So there's no there's no thing there's no stick that it can wrap around. It's, you'll still get rub. You'll still get marbling. I, I fucked up a pair of um, old blue um, black jeans that way, where I just threw them in without thinking in my little front load hoe machine, and got the worst marbling ever on it. And <laughs> yeah, it's actually ruined my. I, I have a stripe on my Indigo Farah gunpowder black jeans too where there's like this big stripe down the thigh because i did the same thing it fades eventually but if you do it inside out in a garment bag you'll protect it and they'll still well, there it. you go and i mean if you want to be precious about it um you can just tub wash them and hang dry they're just gonna yeah i mean that's that's my so i did that and i mean obviously I've, I've been i've done that tons of times from various denim that i bought over the years and it's basically just like instant argument with the wife because she's like, what the hell are you doing? There's like denim, there's blue, you know, water droplets everywhere. And then it, it's the stained. tub has got this weird ring stain on it. Yeah. it like stained the tub and, um, which wasn't yeah. that big of a deal when we lived in an, like a rented apartment that I was like, I don't care about that tub. But now I'm like, I care about my tub. <laughs> Get a good bucket. There Get a big go. bucket. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's where I did. My last pair of unsanitized jeans, what I did is I rolled them up tight and did the hot soak in a Home Depot five-gallon bucket. Shout out Home Depot. Yeah. I turned them inside out, rolled them up, fit them in the bucket, filled it with the hottest tap water I could get and let it sit for two hours. Um, and that is a denim care thing that is important is if you buy unsanitized denim, that means it's like as it is, as it comes yeah. out the factory, it can be singed or unsinged. But if it hasn't been sanitized, it has never been touched with water. And the fibers are actually weaker until they're shrunk with water. And the fit's not going to work for you either because unsanitized denim is cut. The jeans are made, so they're going to shrink into the shape they're right. intended to be. And so if you don't hot soak them, they're going to be the wrong shape. The fit's going to be fuckety. And then they're weaker because they haven't shrunk into their final huh. weight. So it'll be like a 13-ounce denim that shrinks to a 15, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's crazy. That's a big, that's a big difference. What was eye opening to us is when we see, you know, when you, about washing denim is once you go to a few wash houses that do like mm-hmm. pre-rinse on, on jeans and stuff, and you're like, well, if they can go through this, I can wash them. Or like, if you look at what the sanitization process looks like, nothing, nothing is going to do to your denim what sanitization does. It's like fucking steam, com- steam heat compression, smashing. Ah. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. On the topic of cool guy yeehaw, which I feel like is coming all around, what do you guys think about bootcut jeans coming? And are you guys getting? Are you ordering your own bootcut or sort of like? We've we've got a bootcut from Indigo Farah and from mm-hmm. Freenote, and I am pro true bootcut. That means it's more of a straight leg. Mm, than a okay. Yeah, not a two thousand five bootcut. Yeah, like it's. 
2005 boot cut is a fucking that's paper denim and cloth i mean yeah yeah Yeah. shout out scott who gave me some advice on getting new york open i had pdnc those are dope i did too they're actually the top block on those yeah they had the little rivet on your fly on the outside of your fly that was like their their signature way um um so yeah boot cut i'm i'm pro we sell a lot of boots and also it's a proportion thing too though like there are guys that bootcut works for, and there's guys that bootcut doesn't work for. Yeah, and you know it also is a question of what footwear are you wearing under it. There you go. Um, boot break in. A lot of myths of breaking in boots. Is it true or not? Because I, I remember. So when I worked uh, at the Armory, we had sold this shoe company, and the guy who represented the shoe company, and this is no shots or anything, um, was like, "Oh, you should wear your shoes like really tight." And you're going to break them in and they're going to stretch. And I remember being like, what? And then other people were like, no. And people would be like, no, like this guy is, is not, he's not the Oracle here, but he, he was very, in his mind, he was all about buying shoes that would stretch. Um, and I, so I'm curious for you guys to, to shed some light on how boots. should. Be. Okay. So this is an answer for boots that we sell, which are constructed in a specific way, which okay. are going to be Goodyear welted or stitch down construction. Yes, the boot. Some leathers will stretch, um, but they're not going to. They're not going. Your boots aren't going to get longer. They might feel wider, mm-hmm. but usually, what happen? Why your boots feel bigger after break in is. If the, if they're boots with like a f- leather footbed, you know where where you right. put your foot on top of it, that's leather. That will sink in and collapse and mold to your foot. So you're going to gain vertical volume, and that's why the boots feel bigger. Hmm. So my recommendation for people with like with boot sizing is we go off the Brannock device size. And that's, that's, that's that that's that metal thing. The that's tray. that metal thing that when you were a kid and you went to famous footwear with your mom, <laughs> that guy puts your foot in a Brannock. Yep. And what we'll do is we'll figure out your Brannock measurement, both in heel to toe and heel to ball. And then we'll, okay. we'll size you on a boot from there, from that. And some guys can have a different heel to toe and heel to ball difference. A lot of guys have one foot that's bigger than the other. Right. Um, we err on the bigger side when we're sizing boots with people. If you're like in between two sizes, if you need like an eight and three quarters, we'll tell you to get the nine. Because usually like the grade rule differences between an eight and eight and a half, for example, with boots is going to be mm-hmm. an eighth, eighth inch difference. The minuscule. Oh, dang. And okay. if you've got a boot that's like too tight or it's rubbing you in a weird way, causing you a lot of pain, you really just need that to move like a millimeter or two. And then it's okay. So we are on the side of, side of on the larger side with boots, mainly because you can fix that with different socks or insoles. Hmm. And I've had a lot of success with three quarter length or half length insoles. Like it depends on if you do have a tall instep, do you have a low instep, like how your foot is shaped. Because we're getting into like you know three D volumes and geometry and shit like that here. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. The insteps are also, that throws tons of people off, which. Yeah. The instep is like the tallest part of your foot above your ankle. Yeah. Right? yeah. For people that don't know. Because you got some people that have like massive, you know, hobbit looking insteps 
And then people like me that have totally flat feet. It looks like my feet are erector sets. Yeah. And so it can be really tricky, but a lot of times you can save boots with, uh, like you can make it, you can make a decent fitting boot or even a kind of shitty fitting pair of boots fit you really <laughs> well with sock and insole combos. Oh, damn. And okay. we do a lot of engineer boot fittings too, which are even trickier than lace ups because yeah, there's a bottom strap on it and it does make them a little bit tighter, but <laughs> you don't got a lot to work with. Right. Right. Okay. On the stretching side of things, one thing that I have done with success with a lot of people, it really only works with engineer boots. Okay. I had a guy who had a pair of engineers. He could get his foot in and he could wear them for about half an hour. And then they were so tight that they were painful and he could, you know, couldn't wear them for even half a day. They're a black pair of engineer boots. So I had him fill the boots up. Just leather? Yep. Just black, okay. black horse side. Had him fill them up with uh, hot water from the tap. Soaked it 30 minutes. Dump the water out. Wear the boots for a day. What? Yep. I don't know how I feel about putting a hot water in my shoes. Like I said, <laughs> a black pair of engineer boots is going to work with because it's not going to stain it. You're not going to get water stained. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. That's just. So it's kind of like basically. that. It's like the it's like the boot equivalent of the, the tub soak of your unsamphorized jeans. Oh, my right? God. Okay. That's so But that's nuts. like the nuclear option. That's the nuclear option. Yeah. And I had a weird thing. So talking about stretch, I had a weird thing happen over COVID. And it's really like I've even pre-COVID, I worked from home from about 2018 onwards. Um, and I just don't wear shoes in the house. Right. And so my feet. Do you wear house shoes? About, I, I wear slippers, but I don't wear like structured footwear okay. in, in the house. Um, and so I'm effectively walking around barefoot for, you know, all day, every day for a very long time. And I, you know, as we reopen everything and, you know, went full time working on standard and strange and all that. And I'm going through all my different boots that I've accumulated over the years. And half those shits don't fix. My feet grew like somewhere between a quarter and a half size. Right. Across the board. Like I'm, you know, going through like old sneakers and stuff. I can't wear it. I'm like, I can't wear the same more. Anyway, point being is I have a pair of Lofgren um combat boots that i got sized for and fit perfectly pre-covid i got them in the fall of 2019 two years later your feet got bigger my feet got just enough bigger and they will like here's where we talk about stretch they will not stretch like they're already broken in like the footbed's already compacted the top's not going to collapse anymore and like my toes are banging into the end of the toe cap or the cap toe area and it's just like you know i'm sure how you know if i went up a half size it would work but there's zero, you know, they're not going to stretch. Yeah. I mean, bit. there are exceptions. There are some, I see it mainly with shoes that will stretch. It depends on the leather they're made out of and the construction. And some of them are designed to stretch, but, oh, wow. but it's, if, if you're buying shoes and you're not sure what size to get, ask for sizing advice. If you don't get good advice, go somewhere else. There is like one thing, one more thing about stretching stuff there. There's little spot fixes that your cobbler can do for you. So if you have a bunion or a weird toe thing or just like a small detail that mm-hmm. needs to be fixed, you can stretch the shoe, stretch the leather in that area with most leathers. Like that can be dealt with, but that's different than changing an entire size or shape. Like if the last is wrong, just forget it. And yeah. Move on. Yeah. Jeez. Well, all right. Um, who are the Osaka Five? 
or who is the Osaka Five? So the Osaka Five are the denim brands that evolved from Evisu when they, it's sort of like, or Evisu. Um, so when Yamane started that brand, you know, it was the, one of the first, you know, Japanese denim brands. And then that brand kind of fell apart. It's been owned and bought and sold over yeah. the years, but five brands left, including Warehouse, Full Count, um, Studio Dardison. This is like a seven dwarfs problem. <laughs> the Osaka, but they're all they all left to go th- do the same thing, but in in slightly different ways. And I can talk about warehouse and full count in particular because those are who we deal with. Like full count is really hyper focused on the cotton and the fabric, and so they do everything in this really nice long staple Zimbabwe and denim. And then you look at what um, warehouse is doing, and they're much more focused on perfect reproduction yeah i'm wearing warehouse lot 800 right now yeah yeah lot 800 i think is more of a general gene from them it's not like a specific period Mm -hmm. repro but in their catalog they'll have stuff like well this is a 1947.5 and you know it's incredibly specific year to year like they won't just do a world war ii repro you know, that spanned mm. a few different years, they would do, okay, we have this pair that was made in the middle of 1945, for example. And the details are slightly different than when they were done in 1946. Right. That's, yeah, that's intense. And yeah, really, I can't really talk about like what, you know, Studio Artisan or I'm trying to remember these names. It's Denim, Studio, Evisu, Full Count warehouse um samurai maybe samurai basically is like the hidden sixth yeah our selection process out of the we can't just take five denim brands in that's insane um (laughs) piling it on and we looked at we've looked at samurai we've looked at studio artisan the full count warehouse decision was based on sort of like who's got the best selection of fits that work for the bodies that we see oh okay um the other question i had Loop wheel, yes or no? Yes. 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 Loop wheel. Well, yes. So enthusiastic, yes. The qualifier is this. It is a... Is it necessary? The closest... (sighs) Okay. Yes. Are we talking tees or or, or fleece? Are we talking hoodies? Well, I think that's the thing. Like, loop wheel, to me, I, I don't... I know what it looks like in the sense that I've seen a picture of, like, tubular fabric hanging. But I'm curious, is it an aesthetic yeah. advantage or is it more like having it's, it's both. It's comfort and aesthetics. Um, so like the core thing about loop wheel isn't just that it's gravity fed. It's also there's only two needles pumping on the top of the knitting machine as it goes around. That's why it's so slow because it's only injecting two yards mm. at a time. If you look at a modern tubular machine, it's pushing, I think, 28 or more needles all banging at once. Wow. And that's why it's just like the fat, you know, the tubular fabric just pours through. You just, the volume thing. Um, but it's also being pulled through by a roller. And so that it's a much tighter, flatter, less, I have no other way to say it. It's like loop wheel feels like a living fabric. Mm. And, um, you know, like sinker weaves and other tubular knits just don't have that same organic feel to them 
they're still excellent. Like we sell, you know, McCoy's does both loop wheel and sinker and the sinker is really good, but it has a very flat, hard surface. Um, it doesn't shift much and it's just a very different wearing experience, much more like um, a re- wearing a reverse weave piece. And like loop wheel is just, it's buttery soft. Yeah. Yeah. Um, loop wheel is just this very soft fabric. It's very full of air from the way it's knit and fed. But it's also like, in some ways, it is a little bit more delicate because it is a low tension knit. Mm. So if you're coming to me and saying, what's the most durable sweatshirt that you sell? I'm not going to say a loop wheel. I'm going to say buy a sinker weave for McCoy's or buy like our Telegraph. Um, it was like the heavier weave. That are right. all. Yeah. Yeah. With a really hard, flat surface where yeah. there's nothing. That it's a higher tension knit too. It's a lot more dense. Yeah. But if you want to live in the thing, then um, you absolutely, like, for comfort, nothing beats loop wheel. So up until, my confession is up until maybe two, three years ago, maybe, I thought that loop wheel was basically um, like a 70-30 shirt, right? You know, like the, mm. the cotton and poly thing that, that kind of had the somewhat gauzy sort of feel. I thought it was the fabric versus the construction. And what it sounds like, it's a bit both. Yeah. You can inject any yarns into loop wheel you want. So when we were in Wakayama, you know, I was just like pawing at some swatches and stuff that they had. And, you know, we've got a 50% wool, 50% cotton loop wheel hoodie from McCoy's in stock mm-hmm. right now. Uh, but from looking through the different books that the mills have sent us, you, you can do organic cotton, you can do recycled cotton, you can do like our t-shirt is a lo- super, super long staple mm-hmm. cotton. No, you can do cotton linen blends. We've seen... Okay, so you you can do the kind of gauzy thing like I was talking about. Yeah, you can do... Yeah, you could could do a gauzy lightweight, Mm. for sure. Yeah, it's it's a knitting method from which you can do pretty much any type of knit composition that you want, right? Mm. It's It's like you can paint a painting, you know, but you can use oil, you can use whatever, you can use acrylic paint, you know, there's all these different, like, inputs you can use but you're still making a painting right okay i follow interesting and, like mers does a merino wool loop wheel tee oh wow and the machines that mers is using just to be clear are the exact same machines that are in wakayama right so there's three mills left that have loop wheel machines one is in germany that mers uses and there's two mills in wakayama that's it and probably Why? a secret mm-hmm. mill that a bond villain has somewhere. yeah i was gonna say i'm sure yeah. is that a thing where they can make more or they're like going to find more. They're antique looms that require a lot of upkeep. Too. I mean, I remember like when we were in Wakayama, there was like a guy that would just run around and just, you know, just make minor adjustments constantly. Yeah. He was just petting the machines all day, like just tweaking and tuning. And, you know, it's not the most efficient way to make a fabric, but it is. There's nothing else like it. Dang. Yeah. It's one of those things where it can be. You know, loop wheel can be whatever the yarns make it to be. And, you know, if, uh, if someone said to me, you can have a sweatshirt, I would say, I want a loop wheel pullover hoodie. Right. Right. I'd be like, that's it. That's what I want. If you ever want to blow your mind, loop wheel sweatpants, that's the ultimate luxury gift for yourself. Is this like cashmere sweatpants or it's just, it's just a, how it fits? Just loop wheel cotton. It's just like, I'm wearing a pair right now, actually. Um, it's so comfortable and warm. There's nothing like it. 
Like I fly in sweatpants now, and I fly in like the McCoy's loop wheel. Oh, you fly in sweatpants? You heard well, they're the so good. You're down. willing to board an airplane in public wearing sweatpants. <laughs> yeah, I will say that that's a thing now. Where it, it feels like it used to be. You remember when people were like, "I'm flying in sweatpants," and everyone would be like, "You failed. You gave up on life." And now everybody I know has got like some sort of lux, you know, flight travel thing. Well, gents. This was great. I'm glad we got to kind of also go through some of these questions. Uh, before we wrap, is there anything you want to add or mention that I didn't? Like, this is our 10-year anniversary of the store. Like, come September. Oh, really? Oh, shit. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a ride. <sighs> Fucking tell and, me. And, you know, when we look at, you know, where we started with 200 square feet to, you know, 20 or, well, 1,800 selling square footage in New York. It's like such an intense contrast, intense contrast. Like we have jackets that cost more than all of our inventory together did the day we opened in 2012. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. I'm still wrapping my head around. We have a store in Soho after starting 10 years ago in a back alley, two idiots with a bunch of jeans. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, sometimes when we're doing, because we're in the middle of seasonal buying right now and we're just writing these purchase orders that are so big, the numbers that would have just, terrified us when we started and we're like wow this it's it worked yeah i will say i think that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize that any retail store has been having to do since the dawn of time which is basically you know project and assume what they're going to sell and look like it's not new to any business right like every brand like forecasts and or every company does that but it's just like it's got to feel weird because you're yeah you're getting I don't know, you're ordering, you know, hundreds of pairs of jeans, you're ordering this, you, you know, and you're just kind of being like, well, I hope it works. <laughs> yeah, a few years ago, yeah. I was talking with a guy who his family owns a plastic bag factory, and he runs it. Oh, wow. And I was asking him how his business works. And he says, basically, we don't turn on the machines unless we have an order for it. So all of the production is a guaranteed sale. And, you know, their man, they the thing that they have to manage is basically t- production time, right? That's that's what they have to worry about. And then he asked me about how my store works. And I was like, well, six to eight months ahead of time, we order a bunch of inventory and we have to decide on color and size and how many per size. And, and he's like, well, how do you know what's going to sell? I was like, I don't. <laughs> like, you're, it's it's a bit of math. It's a bit of gut feeling. And it's a bit of luck. right? And I'm still not sure how it all ends up like working at the end of the day, but it does somehow, <laughs> you know, cause you have, and, and again, with the, like a lot of the brands we sell, we get only what we order in advance. So if we have a shirt or a jacket, that's like a runaway hit that sells a lot better than we predicted. We can't re up them and like keep feeding the machine basically. But at the same time, something we've gotten comfortable with over the years is what we think of as leaving money on the table. I would rather that we blow through 10 or 12 pieces and then not be able, not have two more to sell someone than order 15 and have three sit around. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely like the retail mistake in the sense where it's like the good, the good mistake where it's like, well, we want to be able to service everyone and help everyone. And it's just like, you can't, you know, it it doesn't mean you're, you're bad, but it's like, you're, you're better off making sure you can, you can, help the next customer than trying to buy so much that you, you know, 
endanger your own business with like good intention. (laughs) A lot of what we buy, thankfully, is seasonless and evergreen. So, you know, knitwear, jeans, boots, all of it. So we do have some insulation from risk, you know, leather jackets, but definitely like seasonal shirts, jacket, and then seasonal jackets and stuff like that. You can, you can make some pretty big mistakes, especially when you've got poor selling. Well, I mean, I have, I have definitely cut back off and on in my life on certain things from like, Oh, well, I'm not going to buy this sport coat this year, or I'm not going to buy this this year. But the one thing I buy, no matter what, whether I'm making money or not having any money is jeans. And I, it's like, I, I can't help myself. I always will get a couple new pairs every year. I'll wear them. I'll, I'll keep them. You know, I mean, I have multiple stacks of denim, but it's like, you, I buy it like it, it's coffee. You, you, I'm not even thirsty, but you just want it. <laughs> so anywho, thank you so much, guys. It was, it was such a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for having us. Likewise. This was great. Bye. Later, Jeremy. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pot with a friend. The season's over. I mean, we, but we're, we're going to be back in like a month. Let's just be honest. Uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Do all the deals. Follow us on Instagram. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at blamopod.com or you can call us, but you know, whatever. No one's going to answer that. Uh, if you want to hang with us and join the Blam fam, visit patreon.com forward slash blamo, where we have tons of exclusive episodes and the whole darn toot and slack community. They're amazing. All right. I will see you soon. We'll be, I mean, there's no interruptions for the Patreon because we just keep it cranking. All right. I'll see you all in a few days. If not, I'll see you in a few weeks. <laughs> Bye.